welcome to the Squamates Podcast. This is a totally serious podcast about herpetology, where we talk about reptiles and amphibians. I am one of your three co-hosts. My name is Mark D. Schertz. I'm a herpetologist and a PhD candidate, and by the time you are listening to this episode, I will have deposited my PhD thesis thing. Uh, which is crazy. We'll get to that in a second. But first of all, I'll introduce you to our two co-hosts. Those are Ethan. Hey, Ethan Kosak here, cartoonist and general layabout. And Gabriel. <laughs> and I'm Gabriel Gaitonas. I'm a scientific artist. No, I'm, I'm a paleo artist and scientific <laughs> illustrator. This is the first time I mess up my intro. My intro. <laughs> We're keeping it. We're keeping it all. <laughs> I'm tired, people. Okay, I'm a, I'm a paleo artist and scientific illustrator, and I uh, used to work in herpetology, but not anymore. And, and feather Excellent. of tyrannosaurs. I yes. always do my intro perfect, and today I could. You did. You screwed well, it up. Well, this time, I feel like we're, we're just on a different, it's got a different tone to it today. I don't know why, but it does. So, hello and welcome. <laughs> welcome to the show. Uh, for those of you who don't know about the show, we talk about... Herpetology, which is um, the study of reptiles and amphibians. And typically, we talk about it in pretty intense language, like very technical, which has been a criticism that we've received. Um, so we're going to try and, and be a little less technical in this episode. <laughs> Apologies in advance for failing to do so. We'll move on straight away into the first section of the show. The first section of the show is uh, called Missed Snakes, where we, we follow up on all the missed snakes from last episode. However, as we released the episode three days ago, we're not yet aware of any real missed snakes from the last episode. So it's perfect, it, winner by default. Exactly. <laughs> well, um, there is one, there's one exception, which is that when I tried to say Dactyloidae, being synonymous with all of uh, Anolis, the genus, uh, I accidentally said Dactyloa, which is just bullshit. So you're, you're dead to me. I, I am. I'm very sorry. I already made this correction in the show notes, which you can go uh, look at at squamatespod.com. Um, but... Yeah, so I wanted to follow up on that. And then, also, we have some cool follow-up, which is that um, you may be familiar from our episode on sea snakes. That uh, that was episode six, maybe? Ish, I think. Who knows? Maybe. Um, <laughs> that was a fiasco. Well, there has been a new paper published by uh, Sherritt et al. in the journal Evolution and Development with the title Vertebral Evolution and Ontogenetic Allometry, the Developmental Basis of Extreme Body Shape Divergence in Microcephalic Sea Snakes. This is a very cool paper. Um, you'll be able to find it in the show notes. Basically, they've shown that the things that are driving the microcephaly in the snakes is um, a combination of heterochrony, which is a change in timing of certain events in development. Um, but there's also something going on with like increasing the number of segments toward the front of the body, because uh, not only is like the rear end of the snake growing much faster relative than, than the front end of the snake, but also the front end has more vertebrae. So it's probably got more, um, more segments. So that's a really cool paper that's just come out and that um, is follow-up on the sea snakes episode. 
I just really want to make a anaconda with buns joke there, but I'm gonna I'm gonna just leave that on the table. <laughs> well, um, I have one. I have one uh, Miss Nick from of mine from last episode when Ethan asked me about uh, if I was reconstructing uh, fossil plants, and I and he asked me if I had I, I, that meant no grass and no flowers. I told him that I did had to reconstruct some uh, flowering plants uh, for uh, because I'm doing some um, paleocene, um, miocene, and eocene plants. And mm-hmm. um, I incorrectly said you that I'm used doing the word gymnosperm. Gymnosperms, yes, <laughs> which is not I meant. I meant to say angio, angiosperms, of course, which are flowering plants. But I said yeah. gymnosperms, which is um, of course like conifers and all yeah. those seed plants. So somehow I had realized yeah. that that was a mistake without like noticing that it was a mistake. So I'll have to change that in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I made that. I. I, I, I Notice a mistake once we were kept talking, but I didn't have time to fix it at that time. So I just yeah. wanted to fix it right away here. Great. And we've lost oh. the botanists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's a herpetology show, so <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. By the way, I, I do most of the time have to reconstruct gymnosperm, so that's why they're always on my yeah. mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay, let's move on to works in progress, where we talk about the things that we've been working on. Now, um, the last episode we recorded two weeks ago or so, and we released just a few days ago. So we don't actually have that much to update you on. Uh, From my side, the only thing that's really changed is that by the time this airs, uh, which uh, hopefully will be, I don't know, by the end of this week, we're recording on the 17th of March, so just, just so you're aware. By the time this airs, I will have handed in my thesis, which is very exciting. I have I have the proof version here to show Whoa. the people on the video. And it's that 328 pages. <laughs> and it's got it's- this beautiful illustration on the front, which I have counterbalanced with a beautiful photograph on the back. That's so, nice. It's going to be, um, I'm really excited. I'm very, uh, very happy that I will have it off of my plate. Um, but really, it just means that I have to, like, there's a bajillion other things that I have to get to work on. So, um, yeah. But that's that's the news. <laughs> I have another funny piece of news, which I'll just say very briefly. We had a paper um, where it... it it, uh, it had been accepted. It had gone basically through proofs and everything. And then we got a notification from the journal. It was saying, uh, we have rescinded the acceptance on this paper. And uh, oh. I was like, hang on a minute. What? <laughs> so they, they realized uh, it, after, after everything had gone through to the end, like we were basically, we had already prepared a press release and everything for this paper because it's very cool. Um, they realized that the editor had, within the last five years, co-authored three papers with two of our co-authors on this paper. And that is apparently unacceptable to this journal. And so they rescinded the the acceptance, gave the the paper to a different editor, which this whole process took like five days, which was super annoying. And then that editor 
accepted the paper again with no further changes. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's just a huge waste of our time. How, I mean, like, I, you would think that being a, a fairly, you know, niche subject. Right. That you would have you this cope with that? overlap all the time. Exactly. And especially, you know, nowadays when we have these huge multi-multi-author papers and, uh, and you know, you, anytime you do a review, you suddenly got 40 or 50 authors on the thing. Literally the entire field. How are you supposed to have an editor who is remotely qualified to actually handle the paper if you're not allowed to have collaborated with them in the last five years? It's crazy. It. Like, I'll do it. It's cool. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That goes beyond the, the 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 annoyance and the difficulty in finding reviewers first, because it's always hard yeah. to find the reviewers. Yeah, I mean every everything every time you're trying to if you're so afraid that conflict of interest is going to invalidate the science, it becomes almost impossible to work because you've got such a block. If, if you're going to set fe like like hard limits on where you're, you know, what you're allowing, what you're not allowing, um, that becomes a serious issue. Anyway, sorry, well, that's a bit of a... Well, yeah, no, I get it. But then you're, yeah, you're opening yourself up to people who don't actually know about the topic at hand, basically. Absolutely. Because, yeah, you know, no, it, it, that is exactly the case. And that is something that we, that we are seeing, you know. Yeah. Uh, you have all these editors. That's the reason that a lot of these massive multi, like these, these um, uh, mega journals are often publishing complete crap because they have to get, um, you know, for example, Plus One has a reputation for publishing um, both really cool science and total crap science, like like <laughs> pro-creationist science. I think, I think this um, counts as a, I'm taking a drink. because Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> they, they do have that reputation. And because it has happened... Uh, and the reason that happens is apparently they um, like they're just unable to find really good editors for a lot of their stuff. Um, yeah. So so stuff sort of um, slips through the loop. So you have the good side and the bad side. On the one hand, you can get good coverage of your papers, and on the other hand, um, this kind of crap happens. So actually, that's where most of the time goes uh, when you submit a paper. Is first, you know. The time for them to find reviewers and for the reviewers to review it that takes forever, and I mean literally sometimes more than a year. Well, and and that's um, in herpetology, right? But for what I've seen, that happens in paleontology. It can take years. It's worse yeah. than in herpetology. Yes. So it's crazy. Yeah, I believe a certain Darren Nash recently had a thing that. <laughs> Had been, I don't know, in revision or review for six years or something. What was that? I know that's insane. I've never well, heard of the, something uh, like that. The Eo Tyrannus or something. No, because that's his own PhD oh. thesis. Oh, okay. But I think okay. I think there was something else that it, one of those. Uh, it had been a, a very very paper. long time. It's crazy yeah, because yeah. what's what's the longest? I think for me it was a one year uh, paper. What about you, Mark? What the I, longest? I have to pull taken? up my database. I think just over a year. Yeah, just um, over a year for me too. Because yeah, there there was one paper where it was lost by the the journal. Um, they lost it for three months, which, which is not as uncommon as the myth. Which see. is really not as uncommon as <laughs> you might think. Yeah. Um, it's just crazy that that can happen month. with all of these online submission system things. Uh, no right. wait, that's the, that's Vogons. I got that right. That was. Uh, <laughs> There yeah, was so one. Uh, there was one of mine that lasted a long time because <laughs> journal 
basically went out of business by the time I submitted. <laughs> it, was, it was a Caribbean Journal of Science, and I think they were either doing a, a reshake up of their own thing or something, but something happened and they went out of like business for like a year and a half, oh, no. just in time when I submitted the, the manuscript. Oh, that's rough. Um, yeah, the longest manuscript that I've had go through revision and stuff uh, that, like, that was actually published in the end was 428 days. So that's, that's, that's a, little bit a long time. Yeah. That was, a lot of that was on us. It took us a really, really long time to revise that paper. But I this have is... three papers that have taken over 400 days to go through the whole process of from <laughs> submission sort of to the, publication. Uh, academic equivalent of comparing scars, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, these are scars. These really are. Yeah. There are <laughs> okay, some horror that's... stories out there. See yeah. <laughs> right. Um, that's that's about the uh, horrors of academia. But anyway, we can we can go on. Gabriel, what's um, what's new with you in the last well, two weeks? Well, you know, or so? I, there are a lot of things that I can. I cannot talk about still yet, but the one thing that I can talk about and that people have been seeing lately is that I've, I've, I was working on this personal um, reconstruction of Tyrannosaurus because it's always good to have handy reconstructions of Tyrannosaurus. And I, I got emailed by a magazine that I will be telling you more about at a later date that they needed an illustration of mine. They wanted to um, use one of the illustrations that I did for the concept art of the BBC show, the real T-Rex, but I cannot license those, of course, because you know those are those were done specifically for the project. But I, I did tell them, oh, listen, I'm working on this uh, illustration. If you give me a couple of days, I can finish it really quick and send it over and say, okay, yeah, cool, send it. And um, I was up until late for a couple of days finishing that. I didn't have, I haven't had that much sleep thanks to that. Uh, but it's a new reconstruction of Tyrannosaurus that um, I, I hopefully will be featuring a cool magazine article soon. Cool. So yeah, that's uh, the, the main thing that I've been working on that I can talk about. What about you, Ethan? Uh, I'm not working on much, but I am getting some Fossorial Sicilians the next week. Yay! Yay. So cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, two African I'm... species uh, from the Cameroons, and I'm probably going to say the name wrong. It's Herpeli squalostoma and Geotrapedes serafini. One blue one, one black one, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's, a, Which that's is, what you need to know. They're all very yeah. samey from the, from the yeah, appearance. Yeah, I mean, Sicilians look very much the same no matter where you're at. Yeah. They, all have to, yeah, they yeah. tend to have the same color, on, on, except for those brightly colored. Those um, brightly, like yeah. Ichthyophis or whatever. Rhino, uh, yeah. yeah, Rhinotremids yeah. and stuff. And yeah, these yeah. ones are from Western Africa, right? Yeah, Cameroon. From, uh, yeah. Cameroon, yeah. Cameroon, yeah. So yeah. cool. I'm excited. And they arrive when? They, they'll have arrived uh, by the time this episode airs, yeah? Yeah, I think Thursday is when we're hoping to ship. <laughs> Excellent. That's Expect what I'm handing in my thesis as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm eager. Exactly. So. Follow, follow, the, uh, follow the podcast on Instagram and on Twitter, and you'll see pictures of those. And, of course, follow Ethan also on all of the things. Uh, that is Black Mud Puppy on yeah. Twitter. Both on both, and yeah. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we are Squamates Pod on both. We'll get back to that at the end. Yes. All righty. So that's the, the catch-up. 
Now, the you mustard. know what time it is. Oh, wait. No. <laughs> Breaking notes. Oh. We haven't had that in a while. No. Um, <laughs> you guys sound so enthusiastic about this. <laughs> no. We shouldn't do it again. <laughs> I thought we were beyond this. Um, yeah, so there has been, obviously, so the, the last time we did a real proper episode catching up on all of the, the great um, news that's come out in herpetology was actually in our December episode. So it's been a while. And so there's quite a lot of stuff that that we could catch up on, but in the say for the sake of um, of speeding things along and making things a little bit more interesting to you listeners, and also because for some reason my university has temporarily blocked access to most of the articles, actually all of the articles for me. I don't know why uh, they seem to have blacklisted my computer somehow. I do not know. I have to look into that. Um, but yeah, so we're going to do relatively superficial uh, jump through a number of... First, we're going to go through some quite cool things that only take about two minutes probably each to discuss. Um, so we're going to make a two-minute rule never for gonna those. That's never going to happen, but okay. No. Yeah, that's never going to happen. Let's go. And then, Let's see how that goes. And then so we're going to move on. Do we need like a, 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 the air horn when it's... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we need the, the cookie. The, 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 we, we do. I've moved to a different... You might have noticed that Elu, my, my Luthrodactylus, is no longer calling in the background. That's because I've moved to a different office to record because I just... <laughs> Uh, he, was, he was very enthusiastic. Recording quality matters to me a lot, and um, I could not, I could not handle it. So, <laughs> um, I mean, he is calling, and if you listen probably really, really hard, you can maybe hear him in the background. But it's, it's three offices down. So now um, I have a question for whoever is listening that works with the Lutheranactivus, and uh, you can answer this in our, uh, our any of our Twitter or Instagram or wherever. Do all Elithrodactylus have the same cookie call? The, the two-tone? No, they don't. Tone. I don't know, because all of the, the, the um, ones that I know have the same tone, have the same call, have the same you know type of call. That's what I mean, the uh, two-tone thing. Because John uh, Stoney has that. Elithrodactylus, John Stoney has that. Elithrodactylus so cookie, of course, has that. The, the miniaturized ones have high-pitched whistles, and I don't think that they have a break in them. The uh, uh, a tonal inflection. The tonal inflection. Well, that's yeah. if somebody works with cookies, answer <laughs> this question for me, please. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get back to Lutherodactylus after we've gotten through these quick, uh, quick yeah. news stories. So uh, from the top, we'll go through Marshall et al. This is a preprint in Peer J preprints. Um, title is Mechanisms of Speciation in Reptiles and Amphibians, a Synopsis. Um, so this paper, I believe, is supposed to come out in the special issue on speciation in reptiles and amphibians that is being co-edited uh, by a number of different people, including um, Katharina Wollenberg-Valero and uh, Sebastian Steinfatz. Valero. And, That's a new way uh, to pronounce Valero, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of her name is German and part of it is, uh, is Spanish, so... What you gonna do? Um, <laughs> anyway, so this paper has a large number of authors, and it's mostly just a review paper. But it's really cool. Um, it is still a preprint, so obviously a grain of salt. But uh, if you are interested in speciation and what we know about speciation in reptiles and amphibians, and all of the different systems in which it has been studied in detail, 
This is a really cool paper to check out. That's all I'm going to say. I won't go through like what it contains. It's just, it's really interesting. You will find a link to it in the show notes. Next, Cunningham oh, et al. This was 2019. Cool. Uh, this is a paper called in, in scientific reports called Apparent Absence of uh, Batrachochytrium salamandrivorans in wild urodels in, in the United Kingdom. So uh, urodels are the uh, salamanders and newts. And basically all they're just saying is that B-sal is not yet present in the UK, which is excellent. Great yeah. news. Yeah. Uh, that's there, also all we some, have to say on that one. Is there some evidence that there may be some resistance to it? Because I thought I had heard something about that with regard to North American salamanders so there, there is evidence of that in in north american salamanders at okay. least anecdotally that i have heard through people who work on it yeah. um the i don't know what the what the literature situation is on that i mm-hmm. make it a sort of a habit of avoiding the the literature on b sal and bd just because i i can't handle it um yeah. and uh yeah. so both, both in terms of volume and in terms of my my own psychology um so in the UK, uh, I doubt very much. So I think that there have been there there were records of uh, B cell in captive salamander populations in the UK. Right. We talked right. about that in a previous episode where someone Let's had, really had traced. What that is. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. B, yeah. What B Yeah. Mm-hmm. The B cell is the is the um, the the salamander equivalent of. Um, of the chytrid fungus, so the the thing that causes chytridiomycosis that's killed so many different frogs, very similar Essentially outbreak a, a flesh eating fungus. It, it, yes, uh, a flesh eating fungus that um, in in frogs it basically suffocates the frog because it um, it blocks the uh, the ability to respire through the skin, which is an important um, barrier for for amphibians in general. So. Uh, both salamanders and frogs, to my knowledge, can be infected by both of these different fungi. Um, and uh, so, so B-sal is endemic to salamanders. It was first discovered in, um, in the Netherlands, where it had essentially uh, dramatically wiped Salaman- out yeah. salamandra. Uh, salamandra, yeah. salamandra, which are the uh, fire salamanders. It was then. It's also been found in Germany since then. It it caused really huge declines, and uh, it also caused the Americans to be like, "All right, no more import of any salamanders into the United States," as and, well as the interstate ban for two years. Yeah, yeah. So, so. B sal is a is a serious, serious risk, especially serious business. Especially in the United States, because Europe doesn't have that many um, uh, urodels, but the, uh, the the states really do. I mean, the eastern United States is the world hotspot for salamander diversity. So, uh, I mean, obviously, this is something you have to be really concerned about. The UK has very few species, um, but they have been concerned that uh, that the import business has brought it into the UK. They do have they do have some in, uh introduced triturus also though. There's uh there's crested newts. Yeah, so the the yeah, crested yeah. newts. I don't know if the are the crested newts not native in the UK? I think they're native. I there's, think they're, I think they're native. native. 
Because they're think, super protected. Great crested newts are, but I think there are other triturus that are there ah, now. All right. Well, th- yeah. So there are a number of different species of triturus and ichthyosaura. Um, yeah. That are that are over there. Uh, but um, in, I, I in general, the, situation the UK is, is with the neotropical salamanders. Uh, but I know that many of them are great in great danger, and I don't know if it's because of bisal or just a regular uh, kitchen BD. fungus from frogs. Yeah. But I thought the yeah, I thought the neotropical ones. It was BD. They were concerned. I think with. so too. I think yeah. so too. It hasn't yet made it down there. Yeah, it's no, probably coming. But it yeah, it's terrible because a lot of the populations of especially well the only south american genus which is polytoglossa are extremely endangered and the populations have gone down severely so um you know we don't need another we don't need another fungus we we definitely do not need another fungus um okay next story Uh, that was way more than two minutes Uh, (laughs) the next story is actually a news piece in nature uh because i I could not get to the um, to the real uh, real paper for this. So the, the real paper is in Antiquity, and uh, it's by Chris et al. called "A Material and Technical Study of Paracas Painted Ceramics." And essentially, what they have found in this in this study is that these um, the Paracas people of ancient Peru painted their pottery with snake urates. So the white bit of snake um, waste, essentially, huh. which is really cool. So uh, this, this pottery that. has snake snake poo on it. And I imagine it would work with most different reptiles, yeah, but snakes produce story, rather a yeah. lot. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a fun story. I thought that would go well <laughs> into our breaking notes section. And it's Arts nice and, and short. crafts uh, for you listeners. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, yeah, please submit pictures of your pottery painted with snake pee and uh, we will upload it on the website. I promise. Uh, and yeah, yeah, you have and my Gabriel word. And I will uh, collaborate on a mural <laughs> in, uh, in Squamate's headquarters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Uh, and the, the next news story of this short bit, actually the last news story of the short bit, is this paper by Camera et al., 2019, published in the Journal of Herpetology, called Historical Assumptions About the Predation Patterns of Yellow Anacondas, Eunectes Noteus. Are they infrequent feeders? And the gist of this story is no. They do not seem to be infrequent feeders, as has long been touted. They rather have the uh, morphology and physiology of animals that are uh very um uh, uh, that that feed frequently so yeah <laughs> they, so they they eat a lot yeah they 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 eat a lot they they're not as um as they, like sit and weighty and they they're more they, active they probably foragers. can if they want to sit and wait uh oh, like sure. a lot of snakes you know yeah I mean, all, almost all snakes, I think, can basically just turn down their metabolism and just 
shut Just off until food, yeah. Gets, yeah. <laughs> food, food gets better. Um, but in so general, I think especially younger animals are going to be hunting more more yeah. frequently. Right, that makes so sense. So they, yeah. they basically found that the yellow anacondas are, are more active than the green anacondas. Is that what they're saying? Uh, no, they just found that they're more active than not active. So it wasn't comparative. <laughs> it was. It's, it's, it's comparing them to. It's comparing them to more active hunters. In the like, you know we work on the assumption that they are oh I don't remember. So but which one has which one because has because it makes no buns. sense like this what which one has buns that's what I need to know. Well <laughs> the reason why I asked that is because I thought well green anacondas are larger more, much larger animals is probably there's probably a, a difference in the way they act because you know they're more they're larger they're more different niche. Well, and also more difficult to moving, right? Because if you are a huge lumbering snake, it's going to be... I think that, that they're just trying to challenge the assumption that these things are not frequently hunting snakes. I, I think that they're not doing a comparative thing. They're not saying anything about green anacondas and whether or not they are sit-and-weighty snakes. They're just saying yellow anacondas have physiological things that closely match you know, more frequently feeding snakes. I, I like this kind of stuff because I think there's a lot of things that we just sort of take as Yes, exactly. Knowledge. That's why I wanted to include this. Yeah. Uh, because it's, you know, it's not really big news, right. but it does challenge our conceptions of like, what are these giant snakes really doing? Right. We well, often work me, on the it, assumption that especially large snakes are not very hunty. It reminded but, me a little although, bit of our... Although, of our conversation yep. with helen where she pointed out that that the whole thing about snakes not seeing well is sort of unfounded most snakes the flummox see. yeah yellow yeah. yellow anacondas are not huge though they're they're kind of small i don't know what the maximum size of the yellow anaconda is very but, very um, large in comparison to i don't know like a blind snake <laughs> well yeah well everything is very large compared to a blind snake but but what i'm saying is that among boys uh yeah it's uh, oh, okay that's not that bad it's a, it's it's not a it's a I say I'm seeing the the so it's about four meters, about four meters, uh, almost five. Yeah, that's meters, not uh, a small snake. Uh, <laughs> that is a no, very big but, snake. Although it's very rare to see them that size, but yeah, it's and it's not as big as the green. Yeah, no, 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 no. the green no. is huge. But yeah, okay, okay, that's all so I wanted to know. That's <laughs> that's just an interesting an interesting story. Yeah. Okay. I think now cool. we get into some of the more intense and interesting uh, news stories that have come out in the last few months. The first of them is one that literally came out just a few days ago by um, Dugo Kota et al. Ecology Letters. Um, it's an accepted manuscript, so it's not, uh, it's not formatted yet. But the paper is called Ecomorphological Convergence. In Eleutherodactylus frogs, a case of replicate radiations in the Caribbean. And if you so, follow me, I retweeted. <laughs> yes, I also retweeted it, and I think I even retweeted it from the from the Squamates Pod um, Twitter account because this is such a cool paper. This is so cool. Okay, so uh, Gabriel, please give us a breakdown on what the Eleutherodactyly day are. The Eleutherodactyly are these frogs that Mark has in his. <laughs> <laughs> in his lab that goes cookie cookie <laughs> no well they're a group of of, of very small of number well some of them are extremely small 
Um, yes. The, but in general, they're small frogs uh, that live all over the Caribbean, uh, in the in both in the in the Greater and the Lesser Antilles, and some of them are introduced all over. Northern South America, there's one species that introduced all over Northern South America. And they used to be part, they used to be, confi- I mean, Eleutherodactylus used to be the same genus where Pristimantis used to be included. All Pristimantis used to be in the genus Eleutherodactylus. Now they're not even in the same family. That's how well we used to know the <laughs> yeah. taxonomy. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's what Eleutherodactylus are. And they're... Um I think all Eleutherodactylus are also live, bear, live, um, not live bearing, but they are uh, direct developers. So yes, they have. They put. Their they do eggs not on have a tadpole stage. Yeah, they, they hatch put their directly eggs on as. Hand. You know, yeah, exactly. The, just, the same as Pristimantis. That's why they used to, you know, be yeah. considered the, the same thing. Yeah. So this is, you know, convergence again. This will be a theme in this episode. I feel. Uh, convergence again is 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 messing up our interpretation of where things are falling in terms of their actual relationships. So this paper, they essentially looked at the entire radiation of the Eleutherodactylus across the Greater Antilles or across the Caribbean, and they uh, they reconstructed the um, the colonizations of the various different islands as well as the um the the morphology of the different groups and this is actually of all of the studies and I follow this sort of research quite closely of all the studies that I've seen they did by far the most um fine scale um division yeah. of ecomorphology so they they yeah. divided ecomorphology into aquatic riparian arboreal uh, bromelicolous so living in bromeliads fossorial so living underground wow. cavernicolous uh, which is um, essentially troglodytic. I don't know why. So some of the words that they use are, are not the correct words. Anyway, uh, Cavernicolus. Cav- yeah, no, Cavernicolus is a, it's a Cavernicolus. Yeah, Cavernicolus is, is surely the same thing as troglodytic, living well, in caves. Uh, I think it's, it's I, another way of saying it. Cavernicolus. Is- wait a minute. Wait a minute. There are grades to cave living. I think. There's uh, stig- stigiomorphic. That, There's that is like, true. Depending on where they are in the you cave and how correct. dark it is. I'm learning a thing. You are correct. Oh yeah, I got one. <laughs> wow. You are correct. You are yeah. correct. There are there are grades to that. I didn't yep. know that. You That's very totally, useful. So like the ohm that 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 I also read right. <laughs> recently. Um, the ohm is is um uh, uh, is a is a troglodyte, right? Stigiomorphic, a, I think. Or is that's uh, stigiomorphic. I think. I, I I don't remember which one's which, but I know there are grades to it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. Ethan is correct. Huh. Fascinating. Write uh, it down, everybody. <laughs> By the way, yeah. I, I must say that there are a ton of species of Eleutherodactylus. It's one of the largest frog. Yeah, it's a huge genus. Huge. Yeah. There, yeah. there are over 200, 200, over 200 species. I think. didn't know they were that, there were that many like varieties there. Like I just thought they were, you know, your generic tree frog. No. And you want to hear yeah, what? Yeah, that's when, the thing. When, yeah. when Pristimantis, which is even larger, used to be included within Eleutherodactylus, it was insane. It was like yeah. seven. It was a weight spin taxon. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like uh, like how we used to like everything was just Hyla. You know? uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I haven't finished the list. Cavernicolus, which apparently is a thing. Um, <laughs> Petricolus, which is the third word that I've heard for living on rocks. Yeah. Um, yeah. However, you put the emphasis. 
um, terrestrial, leaf litter, and semi-arboreal. And, um, and they did essentially two major steps. First of all, they looked how many island transfers they were, and uh, the answer is a lot. Like, equally, I would guess, about as many as the anoles have had. Yeah, I was Which, about to say that. You bring back anoles into this. <laughs> Basically, course, you know, you know, the did what anoles did in the Caribbean. They and went that is, through all and the that's niches. More or less, that's more or less the point of this paper as well. It's basically they're saying that the Eleutherodactylus have paralleled in, in a really strong way the divergence of the anoles across the... So you have, again, a repeated um, radiation system uh, across they, they, the uh, Greater Antilles. They built rafts out of anoles. <laughs> uh, it's you know <laughs> i mean this is a big advantage of a frog that can lay its eggs terrestrially yeah and where you have direct development that means that you don't have a vulnerable tadpole stage and you uh, can actually well, transfer as eggs from point a to point b i'm actually kind of fascinated by the, the idea of an island hopping frog because yeah it's quite rare you know, that's not something that's common yeah that's pretty cool yeah and yeah. and and, and electrolytes are very resistant like um, John Stoney, which is the one that is introduced in the in the northern part of South America, can live like right next to the beach if you have an ornamental plant there that somebody like waters every now and then. It doesn't matter the how sal sal salinity, how much salinity there uh, is in the environment, how dry it is. They can live there. Th yeah. yeah, I mean that's, and it's, that's interesting. That you know, like amphibians that can tolerate salt uh, of any kind is interesting. That's yeah. Supposedly, that's how marine toads got their name, too. Was, exactly. Yeah. I mean, know. they're able to breed in, in brackish water. I think what's really, what's really great about the Eleutherodactylus is also to, to bring back to our conversation in episode eight with, with James, uh, James Stroud, is that the Eleutherodactylus, much like the uh, green and brown anoles, are extremely invasive frogs. So as Gabriel has already said, they are super, super invasive across um, North and South America. But you also have in pretty much every botanical garden that I've ever been to, Eleutherodactylus get there, whether you want them or not. Because <laughs> when you have these, these frogs that do live inside bromeliads, often when the bromeliads are coming out of, of South America into these collections, alive and watered yeah. and everything, um, they are bringing with them these frogs. So, for example, I, the botanical garden here in Munich, that is where I got Elu, my Eleutherodactylus, um, because, well, I mean, he, he originally comes from there. I did not get him directly from there. Uh, but they're super common. I think there's also some in the zoo here well, and in pretty much guess every... What, guess what's the common name of one of the Eleutherodactylus that we have introduced here in Florida? Coquie. Greenhouse frog. Eleutherodactylus uh. <laughs> planirostris, which is introduced here in Florida. We have two, I, but Coquie uh, is almost dead. But Eleutherodactylus planirostris is everywhere, literally everywhere. If you go, if I go downstairs to the swimming pool at night, in my, in my, you're gonna see tons of very small new newborns to larger adults everywhere, um, and it's literally everywhere here. And and it's called greenhouse frogs. So what Mark is saying? Yeah, I, and I just seen, think it's so cool that they I've that they parallel the anoles so well. Yeah, that is cool. I was gonna say I've seen pictures of them like coming in on like produce and stuff too, or like mm -hmm. yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting how they they're really good at traveling. Yeah, and it, it, you know that's that's really unusual for a frog. 
yeah. of all of the frogs, there's there's a reason that Eleutherodactylus are in these collections so broadly. You know. And I just realized that I just answered my own question from earlier because Eleutherodactylus uh, planirostris, which is here everywhere, is not a doesn't make the double call. Cookie. <laughs> well, there you so, go. Yeah, I, I just answered my own question. Well done. <laughs> well done. Very good. Very good. Okay. Um, to keep things on a knolls. <laughs> our next paper we really don't talk about them enough yeah no. we really you know war um our next <laughs> paper is by frischkoff et al 2019 published in nature ecology and evolution one of my favorite journals uh and the paper is called elevation shapes the reassembly of anthropocene lizard communities and basically what this paper does is looked at the effect of forest turnover and things of Anoles on uh, in the Dominican Republic, and uh, the coolest finding essentially is that the anoles that are living in anthropogenic habitats are not the climate generalists as you might expect, but are instead those that pre prefer warmer climes, which is surprising to me, um, but may reflect the fact that. Uh, that anthropogenic habitats tend to have a higher albedo, so they tend to be warmer areas in general. Uh, they also yeah. found that the effect of forest turnover in uh, low elevation areas was basically negligible, but in high elevation areas was dramatic, uh, which is kind of cool. It shows an elevational dependency of their... Um, of their tolerance of habitat change and may also reflect something about the animals that are, you know, cooler than, uh, than the warm animals, their ability to acclimate. So that was quite a, that's quite a cool study. There's also less shade in anthropo, uh, human disturbed areas as a general. So True. animals that live in, in, in more open areas tend to be from warmer, uh, climates. Exactly. Okay. Wow, that was that was a fast one. That's great. We can <laughs> we can move on again. We've only got two left. Uh, a second to last one is by Kuhnemann et al. Also in Nature Ecology and Evolution. This one is called Community Richness of Amphibian Skin Bacteria Correlates with Bioclimate at the Global Scale. So bringing things back to the chytrid discussion and stuff. This paper is, uh, second author is Dr. Molly Bletz, who is a former member of my group in Braunschweig and, um, and my supervisor, <laughs> um, <laughs> my supervisor Miguel is, I believe, the last author on this paper. And it's really cool, um, but really intense. So we're not actually going to go into it in, in any real detail. Um, but the gist of the story is essentially these guys got microbiomes, so they swabbed the skin essentially, of shitloads of amphibians, so 2,349 individuals of 205 species from across the world. And they looked at the effect of, um, of various different factors on what was influencing the bacterial species richness, essentially on the skin of these animals. So in amphibians, the skin is the, the primary um, defense against all kinds of attacks. So you have a very rich probiotic community that are essentially living on your skin 
um, and and helping you to ward off any kind of of attack. And so you have this idea that um, part of the way that chytrid, this fungus that kills all of the animals, part of the way that it gets through is by decimating the um, bacterial community. They can no longer help, and therefore your animal is quite vulnerable. And what they found here is that there is quite a strong uh, association between the between temperature related factors and bacterial skin uh, skin bacterial community um, diversity richness. So, so the colder you are, the greater your um, your, your your bacterial skin community is. Hmm. So the warmer you are, the less less diverse. Interesting. Which is really interesting and and has very strong bearing on uh, climate change, which is why this paper has gotten a bit of press attention. Because as climates warm, we expect that the uh, the the bacterial communities on these frogs will decline, leaving them potentially more open to um, to infection. Such is that as also why 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 montane BD. species seem to be more susceptible? to like you know cloud forest frogs tend to be i mean i've always heard that lowland frogs frogs tend to have more resistance to the fungus than those that live in 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 uh higher elevations or that um, seems to be the so case in south that, america that would be there, the reverse, there are there mm, exactly no. it's sort of the opposite trend but um there are critical temperatures where bd is most effective so uh I can't remember what exactly the temperature is, but there are temperatures, especially at lowlands, where it can't, it's not very effective at all. Okay. As you get higher, it has this sort of, um, it has basically a bell shape of, so like a of the temperatures zone. that it's so. Yeah, yeah. It has a golden zone, and that golden zone, I think, is, is around um, 21 degrees Celsius. I can't remember. But uh, it, it is a temperature that is um, it's somewhere between between 16 and 21 degrees. I really can't remember. Um, but and, and that's just BD is that's just BD. Okay, I was gonna say because most salamanders live in much colder environments. Yes, so much. Yeah. You know. Yeah, so I, mean, I was going to say that in the neotropics, for example, lowland frogs community tend to fare better than those that live in, in higher mountain areas with, you know, cooler temperatures, like between 16, what Mark is saying. Those are, because yeah. like, that's yeah. usually like, if you are like between a thousand and two thousand meters above sea level in the neotropics, you're going to have around 16 to 21 degrees Celsius in, in temperature. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that makes sense now when, when you yeah. explain it like that. Yeah, so I think that there's there's obviously also sort of a switch because um, we know that the um, the the skin diversity, the the you know the, the 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 species richness or the you know bacterial richness on the skin is also some. It has a dynamic together with chytrid, but as I say, I have not. I've basically avoided the literature on this topic, <laughs> so very difficult for me to say anything. In the future, we will definitely have um, a chytrid specialist on the show where we can talk about this in more detail and actually get an insider's view onto into basically what the situation is and, and how it works and all that stuff. 
because this is something that is um, is definitely good to understand, but it's also good to have it explained well and clearly. <laughs> and I don't feel like that's within my ability at the moment. So, <laughs> yeah, um, it is certainly a really interesting paper. I highly recommend going and checking it out. It is, I believe, behind a paywall, which is, um, you know, that's unfortunate. Yeah, it is behind a paywall. But um, there are certainly a number of different ways to get access to the, 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 the PDF. For example, from um, mvences.de, that is um, the, uh, the homepage of my supervisor, and he has access to all of his PDFs on his website, either through an email form or um, for ones that are unlocked, you can just click on the link and it'll take you there. So... Hashtag I can has PDF. <laughs> yes, you can also do that on, on Twitter or you can go to SciHub. All these different things. And finally, we're going to talk about uh, Mizi et al. 2019 Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution. Why have a pet amphibian? Insights from YouTube. <laughs> so, uh, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> Uh, so the gist of this paper, which I think is hilarious, it has a number of authors who I know. Um, <laughs> uh, basically, they watched all of the amphibian videos they could find on YouTube. And then they scored them. I mean, you know, they watched and scored them for various different things. They scored which, uh, which group of animals they were looking at. Um, what was being done in the videos? Were they feeding videos? Were they um, were Unboxing they handling video. videos? Yeah, there's and, a lot um, of. Uh, could you believe it? There's a ton of unboxing videos where it's people. Oh just, yeah, I, that's excellent. I had this shipped to me. Let's open it and you know. Yeah, so I mean, it's just it's such a funny and unorthodox study, and it's I just find it hilarious that it's in a Frontiers journal. <laughs> it's like <laughs> Frontiers watching internet videos. Yay. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, it, it's, it's really cool. There's, um, I find it quite funny. There is apparently a bias, uh, toward more pipids or pipoid frogs, uh, which is not such a huge surprise. Yeah. I, um, African clawed frogs are extremely popular amphibians. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. and also... A lot of salamandroids, uh, which sounds like something Star Wars, but it just means the the the, <laughs> uh, the general group um, salamandras and um, the European salamanders, basically, and an underrepresentation of ranoid frogs, which are like all of the frogs except for pipoids, <laughs> almost, <laughs> and uh, and plethodontoids, which are the American lungless salamanders. Yeah, plethodontoids are hard to hard to uh, keep for a lot of people. So I think I think yeah. there's probably that that would explain that. It I'm does kind of explain it. Surprised but... there's not more you know mention of uh, ambistamids. Yeah, I thought I thought that was funny as well. Like I would expect that to be a huge um, a huge criteria. Right, because axolotls are like I'm saying it wrong again, but they're like the most commonly kept uh, salamander here in the states, anyway. Yeah, but there are only uh, apparently 26 videos of Ambistema 
uh, at least Mexicanum, and 24 of Tiger Tigerinum. So, yeah. Disappointing that, that, performance. In this study, though, you're saying. No, <laughs> in this I mean, study, like, in this study. Yeah. Well, yeah. All you know, of YouTube, there's, tw- there's definitely more than 26. I, I mean, like that makes them how, the fifth how most popular. Um, Instagram videos and stuff because I've seen so many Instagram yeah. stories and videos of, you know, I, 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 I'm white tree frogs. There's so yeah. many of them. Yeah, people yeah, feeding yeah, them yeah. and they're failing miserably at catching their prey. They're, whites yeah. are so useless at hunting. This is, yes. the, yeah, whoa. The fact I think that they're salamanders that eat with a projectile the technique tongue. is to basically fall on, on food. Yeah, <laughs> open your mouth and yeah. fall on the food. Um, See, hope for the best. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, um, the, 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 the axolotl is the fifth most popular uh, thing on on YouTube. Apparently, I've just wanted to say, with relation to Instagram, probably the reason you don't do this on Instagram is that it is basically impossible to search the entire database because it's yeah. just the, yeah. the algorithm is completely useless. Yeah, um, that's, yeah. So there are. I mean, you can get a sense of it. I think by looking at like when you start typing hashtags on Instagram, you'll yeah. see that there are a ton. There's there's there really is like a, uh, I think there's like a plethodontids of Instagram yeah. hashtag. Yeah. There's, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the hashtagging game on Instagram is is crazy. Totally yeah. crazy. But if it's, you don't engage, you can't get your stuff seen. If you want any kind yeah. of, uh, if you want people to see anything, at least yeah. a little bit yeah. in your post, you have to go, yeah. be good at that. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm, 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 I'm imagining that also part of the reason why Asholotl's pronounce them correctly are popular is because they have become in japan they have become super popular thanks yeah. to these uh, anime yeah. uh versions of astrolot yeah uh and 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 there like, are even comics about them yeah like, yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes there but there are varieties of, they have morphs you know that are unique to japan they're not coming into mm-hmm. or out of Cool. Uh, and same with Australia. There's a Australia hit on a uh, T positive albino, which they call a copper morph. That it, separately they hit on it separately from the one that's here. Hmm. Crazy. So, so the point of the paper is what? <laughs> Great question. They <laughs> end. They end the abstract as follows. We suggest that such data can be used to profile potential pets for trade and attempt to avoid conflicts with threatened and highly impacted alien species. So basically, you can see which animals have the most interest and... uh, and uh, how many of them are are protected and how many are not. I don't know, that's sort of specious to me though, because they're only popular because that's what's available. You know, and yeah, especially well, it depends. Especially if you're if you're um, biased toward English language things, then absolutely. You that know, too, yeah, that too. That absolutely. mostly reflects the interest in uh, in the United States and the UK. And in the UK, very few people are keeping any kind of uh, salamanders. Some, but not a lot. Especially not in comparison to America. Um, but I mean, I don't know if they, I don't know how they did their search terms. If they were able to find um, a, a lot of stuff on the um, in German things, in French things, you know that sort of. I mean, yeah. Germany has got to be the biggest market for this stuff. So, yeah, 
yeah. I would like to see a study like this showing the importance that can have on people to have contact with these animals. Because I do believe that, you know, having pets, even exotic pets, when I like what they consider quote unquote exotic pets like this, yeah. it's important for people to develop a sense of caring for these animals. Well, and I, you know what, I think part of the problem right there, we, we had a conversation about this a little while ago on Twitter, but I think part of the problem is, is that we lump everything under the word exotic. Yeah. And mm. that's a problem because yeah. a guy, a kid who wants to own a leopard gecko is not the same thing as a guy who wants to own an actual leopard, but those exactly. are both exotics. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, and, and, I, and there I should be some kind of, of like part, grade or tier to it, you know? And and part of the reason why we all are interested in these animals is because when we were kids, we probably had them. I mean, right. or when wanted we to kids. keep them. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Like, it's important. I think that I wouldn't, I, I've always, I always grew up with this thing when I saw, I saw a lizard in my backyard and I caught it and I wanted to keep it. And so you, yeah. I, it's important to uh, foster that in kids, I think. I think I, it, it's I, yeah. I totally it, agree. Yeah, right. we're gonna and, get back to that in just a few minutes. Yeah, and I yeah. think this all yeah, not to go further, but I think this all gets kind of hairy because I, I don't think it's great to to take stuff out of the wild, especially threatened or endangered animals, and that's a huge problem with the reptile trade. But also, a lot of animals like ball pythons were imported for years and years and years before we got to the point we're at now, where they're all basically captive bred. You have to start somewhere. So it's it, you know there's not an yeah, easy answer it, it, to that. it needs it needs to be it needs to be weighted against each other. Honestly this this paper is um it's nice. It's really it's it's nice and simple. They did some complicated modeling stuff on it, which I definitely do not understand. <laughs> um they have these these weird convergent graphs that are something about taxonomic patterns and and whatever, but uh it is, I mean, it's cool to see what kind of uh, biases you're getting in terms of the coverage, but your coverage on the one hand is going to be influenced, as you say, Ethan, by the things that people are have available to them, right. plus the things that are interesting to them, plus whatever, you know, language well, zone you're interested I'll, in. I'll give you, I'll give you an example that, that, again, not to draw this out, but like fire salamanders are relatively common in Europe. They're almost impossible to get in the States. After the ban, there's really only a handful of people who have them, and they don't put out hundreds of babies like other salamanders do. They give yeah. essentially give birth to a handful of these guys. So there's never going to be the, – the, the, the demand is always going to outpace what's available. And, yeah, and a lot of the people who are keeping them are just not interested in putting videos on YouTube. And I think, right. you know, especially because YouTube uh, is is currently not really the major venue for that sort of stuff. Instagram exactly. has dominated. Exactly. Because on Instagram, well, it, actually, it is so it, you know, easy to trade things illegally. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, if you want to connect from, with, with... I was going to say, if you want to connect with other people who are keeping them, that tends to be Facebook groups. Right, uh, as and much Facebook as I can't is, stand it, 
That's, Facebook you know, is the major leader for the inter- the the illegal international trade of of species as well now. Right. Um, yeah. And, so and to that's be fair, a major you know, thing the, to consider. Even if it's not illegally, even if it's legally, and even if yeah. people are, are keeping animals that are common, uh, it, both Facebook and Instagram are much easier ways to share what you have. So it makes yeah, the, totally. the, the, the it, it's much more easy to it's much easier to 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 uh, record a video and put it on Instagram or Facebook than to do it on YouTube. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. how it is. Right. So, you know, I see, I mean, it's a nice paper, like you say, Mark, and everything, but I see it a little bit of pointless. I don't see mm-hmm. what the, I keep trying to see what the paper is telling me, and I don't see it's telling me anything important. I'm sorry. But <laughs> I think, you know. like you said, I think there are good points to maybe to be made from some of that information, uh, but but not not what's there, you know? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, we're going to move on. It's time for Hashtag Herpers. Hashtag Herpers. Um, we should apologize. We didn't explain on the last episode that we were changing the format just for that episode briefly. Exactly. So we could do the Anole thing. Yeah. 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 We, uh, yeah, we, we had to focus on, on well, getting that thing done. For the second time, <laughs> we we should yeah we should say we actually did record an explanation of what we were doing, but forgot yeah. to re-record it. Yeah, exactly. So, so. our Oops. bad. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we make up for it by featuring one of the most badass herpers of history, uh, Joan Beauchamp Proctor who was a uh, British lady. She was born in 1897. So if you recall of a couple episodes ago, we talked about this series of badass women from the turn of the century. Uh, Joan Proctor was one of their contemporaries. So she was born 1897. And uh, to give the story away a bit, she regrettably died at, in 1931. So for those of you quick at maths, that's 34 years old. So she led a very short life. But in her short life, uh, first of all, we have incredible records of the things that happened in her life because of the people with whom she became associated and because she was considered so influential and so important that people really took the time even during her lifetime to recognize uh, the contributions that she was giving, which is maybe not the case for several of the other um, uh, Herpers that we have talked about in the past. So um, most of this story that actually all of this story that I'm going to summarize for you is from her Wikipedia page because her Wikipedia page is by far the most complete of any of the major historical Herpers and, uh, and sheds quite a lot of light on the story. So um, Joan was, uh, as I say, born in 1897, and around the age of 7 to 11 years old, she fell in love with herps. That sounds a bit familiar to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the case of a lot of us, you know, it's, it's exactly yeah. that age yes. uh, where you start to be like, I, I like this the scaly ones and the and the slimy ones like which it quickly developed at least for me into an it obsession does. it does yeah. it yeah. very quickly turns into an obsession so the same thing seems to have happened to to Joan 
Um, but her whole life was marred by a series of extremely severe um, illnesses that mostly seem to have had a lot to do with her intestines. So um, intestinal discomfort and apparently chronic pain. I couldn't find um, what exactly the the diagnosis had been, but I imagine you know a number of diseases that today would be totally treatable, um, or or at least yeah. manageable. Sounds like Crohn's or something. Yeah, at the time could have been Crohn's. It could have been um, uh, uh, whatever it's called, the the colon one. Oh um, yeah, yeah. Well, there's anyway. all the I, IBS and all that stuff. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, yeah. There's a whole the whole series of awful things that can happen to your to your innards, and uh, she seems to have had quite a number of them. So, for all of her childhood, or most of her childhood, except for apparently one brief six month period that she spent in Switzerland, she was in chronic pain. Which, um, if any of you listeners uh, live in chronic pain, as I'm sure some of you do, and I'm terribly sorry for you uh it's just an awful it's an awful way to live and um and it has a huge it can have huge effects on on psychology and all kinds of all kinds of stuff so uh yeah it's something that that takes a lot to manage and this manifested in the case of joan's life with her having to give up on the idea of going to cambridge to study which had been her her ambition um however um, while that could have stood in the way of many a person, what she somehow um, managed was to establish a relationship with this guy. I don't know if you've heard of him. His name is George Albert Boulanger. Um, it's a bit famous. He's a, he's a little famous, at least in, in herpetology. Uh, if you I know, believe I, we've mentioned him before. We have indeed mentioned him before. We have, yeah. Um, a few species so, that have been described by him. A yeah. few Boulanger described at least two thousand species, <laughs> yeah. not just of reptiles and amphibians, but also of fish and various other things. He apparently fell in love with roses toward the end of his life. Um, but so Boulanger is arguably one of the most famous herpetologists of all time. He was sitting um, at, at the time when uh, Joan was a teenager. He was sitting as the, what is it called? Uh, the Keeper of Reptiles and Fishes of the British Museum of Natural History, which is today the Natural History Museum in London. Um, and so she established a connection with him and in 1916, when she was just 19 years old, she went to work as his assistant and, um, and also became a, uh, an assistant at a separate smaller uh, museum. And in doing so, in establishing this really strong connection with, uh, with Boulanger, she was able to skip the formal requirements of the university that were not attainable for her, which meant that she was able to pursue this incredible career um, largely through through luck and um, and uh, kindness, it seems, which is excellent. It's it's just wonderful. So, at nineteen years old, this is just the, basically the same year that she started working with uh, with Boulanger. She uh, published her first paper. Nineteen years old. That's crazy. Um. It was a paper on variation in a pit viper, 
And she went on to have an incredibly um, productive career and, and life. She did all kinds of things. So um, a year later, she was elected um, as a fellow of the Zoological Society of London. So I don't know if you're uh, aware, dear listeners, but in the UK, when you join one of the major major societies or you become a fellow of that major society, you get letters after your name. So it's not just PhD or MSc or whatever, but it then becomes, she became uh, Joan Beauchamp Proctor Z, uh, FZSL. Um, and in fact, I think it, 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 toward the end of her life, she had a series of different ones of these because she also became a fellow of the Linnaean Society and of uh, another society later on. So um, when Boulanger retired, just four years after she had starting, started to, to work with him, she took over his post at the National History Museum. That means she was a curator in arguably the largest museum uh, for natural history in the world at the tender age of 23, which wow. is crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's not bad at all. And you can imagine, you know, managing that sort of lifestyle with chronic illness uh, and, and pain must have been incredible, especially at the time when, you know, the the the... A lot of the medicines that were available at the time were not quite as refined as they are now. So uh, depending on how she was managing her pain or if she was managing her pain, it might have been um, really a serious challenge. Yeah. So she went on to describe lots of species. I didn't find out how many species precisely. What I did find out that she is that she has only two, or at least from the Wikipedia page, she seems to only have two species named after her which seems like not enough so um i might i might work to rectify yeah. that but if anyone Log beats me to away. it that's all right <laughs> Log that um, away, mark <laughs> yeah yeah uh, i i wasn't aware of this otherwise i would have done something about it earlier um but yeah i i may very well do something about that um so because because she was such an active taxonomist and was naming lots of species in following, you know, uh, following on from Boulanger, you sort of have to, otherwise <laughs> letting down the team. Um, and so she became, she was elected a member of the Linnaean Society. Um, so she got those letters after her name. And then in 1923, to my surprise, she became the curator of reptiles at the London Zoo. So the Zoological Society of London. So um, that's a change from the largest museum in the world to one of the earliest and most prolific uh, Western zoos, um, which I think had its heyday probably around that time. It did. Mm -hmm. uh, when you go there now, it has not aged as well as, as it might have. I mean, it's still a wonderful zoo. It's very cool, especially considering that it's in the center of London, essentially. Uh, but it is very small, especially by comparison to uh, some of the, the German zoos and also the, some of the American zoos. Well, the, especially but the history, the American the history of that stuff is really interesting, though, like the, the yeah. how, it, how it started as, uh, you know, a menagerie more than a... Exactly. Yeah. 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 And it's, you know, it's, it's one of those places where they have the, the photos of people riding zebras and stuff like yeah. it's a, yeah. um, a really crazy. It did start as a menagerie. That's true. Yeah. And, and I mean, today the, the London zoo is famous largely for its, um, its work also in charity stuff and in doing things worldwide and breeding centers and stuff. But 
What's really cool is that Joan was responsible for um, designing, basically single-handedly, designing the way that the reptile house would work. So she did everything from the lights to the, the cage design, the building design, every aspect of this building she planned. And much of that stuff that she like that she envisaged, envisaged for example, this special glass called Vita glass of some kind, uh, Vita glass, I think, that, um, that allows UV light to go through it. So she sort of realized already that UV was going to be so important to these animals. And, wow. And now gave that's them... That's interesting, yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a big, big, big thing, especially in, you know, the 1920s. In 19, um, 1923? 1923, she took over that post and, and started designing the London Zoo. It took her two years, apparently, to design the zoo and build it, I think. That's a, um, that's actually incredible because yeah. there are I mean I have reptile care books from the 50s and no one's thinking about UV yet. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And apparently the building has largely not changed at all since I mean obviously it will have become more modern uh, in yeah. terms of the the accoutrements the, the the wiring and everything um but in in essence the building's unchanged from her her design and, and conception of it which is so cool and and now outside that building there is a bust of her as well which is apparently an excellent likeness um so uh, if you are ever in london and you happen to be you know in the in the vicinity of the zoo uh go in have a look and go and look at this this beautiful bust um apparently to get back to her moving to the zsl uh so the zoological society of london the zoo um around that time she apparently sent a letter to um to carl schmidt in chicago to tell him that she had left the natural history museum because of conditions unfavorable to women which uh, i think we all know more or less what that means yeah read um, into that what you will but yeah. yes yeah um you know typical 1920s sort of thing mm -hmm. so it's great that she was able to pursue uh, in a, in a in a better environment um her passions elsewhere and um so she she had some eccentricities, which might remind us of some other ladies that we've uh, featured from past episodes, such as a particular fondness for very large and relatively dangerous reptiles, uh, most notably her uh, tame Komodo dragon that she <laughs> took with her on regular walks around the zoo. And apparently it was so tame because she had been handling it since it was little um, that she would even let it interact with children and things in the zoo. You know, that's... You know, <laughs> I mean, I get you're right that health and safety there. But if you're going to pick a large, dangerous reptile, I think that's a good one to go with because they are trainable. I've seen people... Yes, yeah, they yeah. are. And she, that was something that she realized as well. These are, yeah. these are highly intelligent animals that can be trained. Right. Um, and, and that's not something that had really been uh, realized, I guess, until that point. I, I'd, like, I'd feel much better about uh, a tame Komodo dragon, per se, than like a tame python, like a large python or large constrictor. They're not as, you know, there's not as much going on upstairs. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, essentially, the denouement of the story is that she... Uh, resigned her post in, or she tried to resign her post in 1928. Uh, the president of the ZSL was like, nah, 
So he, he <laughs> refused her, her resignation. I'm not entirely sure why or what the consequences of that were for her, if she had had to keep working or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, so she, she tried to resign then. In 1931, she was awarded an honorary doctorate um, from the University of Chicago. But in that year, she also um, died of cancer. So, you know, having been handling chronic pain for most of her life, then to die of of cancer is um, uh, it's it's a sad story. It's sad in a very different way to some of the other women that we've talked about. Yeah. Um, but it's it's still, you know, one hopes that the environment today is different, that people are not being forced to leave their jobs because of conditions unfavorable to women as well as you know they're they're not having as much t of a hard time managing chronic pain and and um, you know Ugh, difficult <laughs> but what a badass yeah indeed such a badass so um go check out her wikipedia page go to london zoo if you get the chance there are lots of delightful things there um and yeah, it, it's. But uh, you probably won't be able to let your kids pet the Komodo dragon. You probably won't any longer be able to <laughs> let your kids pet the, the Komodo dragons or ride around on zebras or anything. So unless you jump uh, the fence like Gabriel, yeah, so, some things do change. <laughs> okay, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> don't jump fences in any zoo like under that any lady conditions. With jaguar. Yeah, know, yeah. It's terrible. Gosh, there are some stupid people. Okay, let's move on to a much brighter topic. Let's talk about Scolicophidians. Okay, so before we do anything else, I have to apologize because in the last episode, we I mentioned the fact that we'd ha I had this paper on Xenotyphops published and I kept talking about Scolicophidians without once mentioning what the fuck a Scolicophidian is. <laughs> So, sorry yes. about that. Please, tell us what a Skeletorphibian is, please. Okay, a Skeletorphibian. <laughs> it's the spoopiest of all of the amphibians. <laughs> okay, Scolicophidia. Scolicophidia is a group of snakes that are called in common parlance the blind snakes. And basically, these are very typically very small, tubular uh, snakes without recognizable or without really external eyes for the most part that have um, very a, unusual skull morphology. They come in a huge variety of sizes and colors, and um, they include... The uh, Brahmini blind snake, Indotyphlops brahminus, which is the world's most widespread snake. Also called the flower pot snake because yeah. it travels worldwide in your flower pot soil. Uh, it's and quite because small, it's parthenogenic. Right? It is small and it looks like a worm at first. It's small, it yeah. looks like a worm. And because it's parthenogenic, it can, a single individual can colonize any ah. location. And that is what has led the, led to them having such an incredible um, uh, expansion. The smallest and snake the, in the world also belongs to this group. Correct. Yeah. So um, there are three things that basically unite the scolicophidia. One is this this feature that's called scolicoidy, 
which is basically looking like a scholar Cophidian. It's a bit of circular logic. It <laughs> happens a lot in science. Um, is it kind of wormy looking? It's, it's it, kind yeah. of wormy looking, exactly. Um, two is having quite reduced eyes or very simple eyes that do not have cones, it seems, or for the most part do not have cones. And um, three is being microstomated, that is to say they have small mouths. And um are they are they worm eaters? So basically all scholocophidians no. are specialized to eat eusocial insects in very, uh, very large amounts. So the so termites and, termites and ants. Got it. And they, they that take is that the adaptation thing. to a crazy degree because some of them produce really the same, crazy. Yeah. The chemical signals. Of um, of ants, yeah. and so they don't so they they don't get attacked within ants or termite nets, nests. They produce this, yeah. so ants ants don't recognize them. At least some of them, uh, leptotiflop lepto leptotiflopoids, I think, do that. And, and we also should say that scolicophidian is not a natural group. Right. No. So that's that's part of the, that's part of the story here. So what are the Scolocophidia? Obviously, it's sort of, it's a rank, but where do you put it exactly? Difficult to say. Um, and the reason that it's difficult to say is that as Gabriel has already given away, it is not a monophyletic group. So the, the three main constituents of the Scolocophidia are three um, families slash superfamilies that are, that are valid, okay? So... Um, on the one hand, we have the Animalepididae. These are things that have a, um, uh, they have relatively large scales. They, they include uh, just four genera. That's Lyotyphlops, Typhlophus, um, Helminthophus, and Animalepis. And they eat with this mechanism that's called maxillary raking. So maxillary raking is essentially when you take your upper jaw and you it's just the maxilla in these in these snakes and they use their maxillae independently to move food into their mouths so each this side is of a, their mouth it's sort of a raking the, action yeah exactly each exactly. side of their mouth and it's from above <laughs> We're all making so, this. We're, we're making this nobody can see thing. us, and we're all doing if the same motion. If you imagine, <laughs> Im imagine if a uh, Velociraptor or a Tyrannosaurus were trying to get something on a table closer to it, you know, with its teeny tiny arms. <laughs> the look on Gabriel's like, face. Yeah. Don't imagine that. Don't imagine that. No, it's yeah. like no, they're, they're walking their jaws. Exactly. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're walking they walk their, their jaws, jaws to... a little bit like a, a larger snake, but it's only one bone that's doing this. Okay, so that's the animal epididids. <laughs> it's very easy to put too many. Okay. <laughs> then you have the leptotyphlopids. So the leptotyphlopids is a very large group of blind snakes. Um, the two most known genera are Rena and Leptotyphlops, but it, as I say, it's a huge radiation. I think there are over 100, 150 species. Until recently, they all, all used to be in the same genus, but the genus got <laughs> yeah, partitioned yeah, yeah. So into a million. That's the other thing. Scolocophidian taxonomy is a huge nightmare. Mess, um, yes. It's, it's a mess, and people use really ridiculously stupid characters to identify species like the length of the of the lower intestine and stuff 
It's like, <laughs> what? Why? What? Why? <laughs> That's the stupidest thing to use. Um, so a lot of soft tissue yeah. stuff going on. Um, and what's really interesting is, well, we'll get back to it. Skulls are really important to tax, to taxonomy in this group, and and you'll I'll explain why in a second. So the the leptotyphlopids eat with mandibular raking. So the maxilla is your upper jaw, right? The mandible is your lower jaw. So in the in the animal lepidids, you do not have a lower jaw with teeth. You have a lower jaw, it's still there, but it doesn't have any teeth on it. So your upper jaw is doing this raking action to get food into your mouth. Well, in the leptotyphlopids, you have the lower jaw doing the action of moving the food into your mouth in the same way. So it's also this independent action, and it's also a raking action. So you're moving your, your bottom jaw. If you imagine, you know, caressing the, the bottom of, a, of an elephant. <laughs> he has a I mean, what kind of uh, 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 I was going to say like a little it's like a little conveyor belt of yeah, teeth yeah thank you that's, that's better yeah that's yeah. a better way it, of putting sort it sort of but not really yeah, a don't conveyor imagine belt. caressing the bottom of an elephant or however I don't know how you got to I the, mean you can if you want but I'm not sure how that's yeah, right I don't know how the analogy <laughs> if you're trying to tickle an elephant's underside yeah the weirdest analogies in the world this is this is also sort of a comedy podcast. I don't know if you've noticed. But, um, Jesus. Anyway, okay. so leptotyphlopids have this this special bottom uh, 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 bottom jaw raking mechanism. Okay, so already we have a primary difference between leptotyphlopids and animal lepidids. Now we have a third group. The third group are the typhlopoidea. For some reason, we've decided that this is a superfamily, where the other things are <laughs> families, because we're not able to compare ranks. This is very important that you know. <laughs> if you're going to compare the diversity of two super-specific ranks, just stop. Don't even bother, because you can't. Anyway. Also, so all the of these used to be in one genus and very recently got separated into a bunch of them. <laughs> <laughs> so most of them used to be in one genus, that's true. Um, and, Here and comes the they were indeed um, divided very intensely uh, by um, hedges and wells and um, a number of different people in a series of of unusual papers. One of them was published, for example, in I think the Caribbean Journal of Herpetology, mm -hmm. and was not only relevant to Caribbean things but worldwide relevant. So it was very unusual. Anyway, so this third group of snakes. Also hugely diverse, um, the typhlopoids are actually divided into three families. There are the xenotyphlopidae, those are the ones that I've just published a paper on that we'll get back to. The garopilidae, which is a very recently recognized family of, uh, of typhlopoids from Southeast Asia. And the typhlopidae, which is an enormous radiation that is uh, worldwide. So. Indotyphlops brahminus, the, the brahmini blind snake, the flower pot snake, is a member of the Typhlopidae. Can I, can I ask a question? You can. What is the etymology of the Typhlo? Oh, I don't know. Do we? Because <laughs> it keeps coming up, and I'm curious yeah, as to... Yeah, it has probably had to do something with being blind, but I'm not sure. But why then is Typhlosion 
the Pokemon. Because it's also very common. In, no, it's very common in, in well, Sicilians I, as well. It is indeed say, blindness. Yeah, because it's common in Sicilians okay. as well. A lot of Sicilians have this. Right? Yeah, Typhlosion doesn't have eyes. If you recall, oh, it does have eyes. All right. So that's just an idiosyncrasy. All right. <laughs> yeah, um, we must also say that these Scaldicophidians are all overall, like if you look at them as a group, which are there, like Mark said, it's, there, it's not a natural group, it's paraphyletic, but they all look very similar. All these fossorial snake They're look very basically same. the same. They're brownish, grayish, with little or no pattern. And, you know, it's like, it's like Amphisbanians. They all tend to look very similar. Yeah. They remind yeah. me a lot of Sicilians. Uh, yeah. They look a lot like Sicilians. Because fossorial animals don't yeah. really have a use for color yeah. or pattern. And they're usually blind. So they're all kind of the same yeah. brownish, grayish, pinkish exactly. color. They're kind of, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a remarkably diverse group of extremely samey animals. Because <laughs> it turns out you don't need that much variation if you're small. Because you can... It, it, you can have regional diversifications and regional speciali specializations. And, um, and it also, because you're feeding on the most abundant prey in the world, which are your eusocial animals, um, I don't know if, if, uh, if competition is ever going to be an issue. So um, finally, on the typhlopoid side, the question was, uh, sort of the question that we were addressing in, in my recent paper, um, Chrétien et al., published uh, just uh, last uh, last month, we looked at, uh, so the typhlo, the typhlopids, the family typhlopidae, um, they were always known to have also maxillary raking, so the same sort of mechanism of the animal lepidids. And because of this similarity, a lot of people had placed them relatively close together in the, in the phylogenetic tree. Um, the question was, what's the situation in gerapilids? Because the family was only recognized after the genetics came out. And what on earth is going on with xenotyphlops, which is the weirdest of all the things and has its own family. It's just one species has of, its own family. Of all the things. Is the weirdest yeah. of all the things? <laughs> it, is, it is the weirdest of all of the typhlopids. It really is. So, uh, of typhlopoids. Um, so... In the Garapillid case, it, it turns out that while we were writing our paper, uh, a, a, a micro-CT scan of one Garapillid species was published in a paper by uh, Fred Krauss, who is an awesome herpetologist who does a lot of stuff in New Guinea and that area. And he was, I, I suppose, not aware at the time that this was the very first osteological data on any member of the Garapillidae. And what he, he showed in these pictures was that the upper jaw mechanism is exactly the same as in the Typhlopidae. And then what we found in the Xenotyphlops paper, and I happen to have a three-dimensional print of the Ooh. skull of Xenotyphlops in my hand, <laughs> which of course cool. you can't see, dear listeners, but- It's um, cool though. You should post a picture cool. of it. Uh, I will post a picture. <laughs> I'll post. I'll post the rotational GIF of the I, of the uh, skull. It's I, I, I take cooler. it that's not life size, though. This no. is. Um, <laughs> that so, would be a so huge skull. <laughs> <laughs> that would be yeah. a yeah. So the skull is actually about a centimeter long. The printed skull is uh, about six centimeters long or seven centimeters long. So it's about seven hundred times magnified. Um, 
Anyway, so what we found in xenotyphlops is that their jaw mechanism is also more or less identical to the rest of the typhlopids. That is to say, typhlopoidia has a jaw mechanism that is completely conserved. Now, what is, what is really crazy about that jaw mechanism, and this is something that um, has not really been published in detail, that needs to be, is that the maxilla, so in, in the animal lepidids, also having maxillary raking, your maxilla, that bone that bears the teeth on the bottom of it, has at the top of it a hinge with another bone. The, I think it's the prefrontal. And they sort of function as, as, a, as a hinge would, exactly as a hinge would. One is, is joined to the end of the other. And so you get that raking action. Well, the typhlopids have found a different way to get the raking action. Instead of making a hinge at the top of the bone, they have punched a hole through the side of the maxilla and have a, a bone of the palate, in fact, the palatine, shooting through the hole and the entire maxilla rotates as a bone on an axle. It's possibly the only axle in the entire biological world, huh. which is completely bonkers. So um, this thing, which you'll be able to see if you look closely in the CT scans, that'll be in the uh, on our on our um, on the show notes. You can see in the CT scans that there is a hole that goes straight through the maxilla, and there's a bone poking out of it. That is insane. That's completely crazy. And um, nobody and tell the, nobody so tell the creationists. It is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is a new solution to the same. Issue. But what surprises it's, me exactly. is that anomalepidids are usually considered to be the most basal of all snakes, of all extant snakes, right? So are we saying that, could we say that this is like the ancestral trait for all snakes? And that is precisely the question. Exactly. Okay. So we're, we're going to get to that. So first of all, uh, when did this group originate? This is a question that we got from a, a former student of mine here, um, Lorenzo Sinici, who um, is the, what is his name on the, on the interwebs? One second. He does, he does a lot of cool stuff. He, he handles a lot of uh, venomous snakes and stuff. Um, very safely. He's actually, I think he's in the process of learning how to handle them properly. Um, uh, the hots. <laughs> yeah, the hawks, but wild, uh, mo mostly, I mean, wildish snakes. So um, Lorenzo is crazy.snakeman on the Instagram, which <laughs> uh, <laughs> sort of gives it away. Um, so he asked, how old is the lineage? And the answer is the lineage is roughly the same age as the as snakes. So... Um, snakes originated around 130 or so million years ago, and that is probably the time at which um, this branch or these branches diverged from the ancestor of snakes. This raises the question, this what is, did that ancestor look like? This is something in the, somewhere in the Jurassic. Right. For those of and, you who use um, time, and time ranges. For that. We've discussed this a bit before. We indeed, we talked about this already in the first episode, and we talked about this also in our sea snake special. Um, 
So the, the question of what the snake ancestor looks like is probably something that Gabriel knows the most about. Yeah, well, there's not much known about it because snake fossils are super rare. They're mostly, you know, vertebrae. And, you know, we don't really even know what what Mark was saying to us before the show. Um, we don't even know <laughs> much about extant snakes' vertebrae morphology. So there is, you know, a, a difficulty to... Uh, Compare comparative com difficulties here. Um, All that we know is that they basically, pretty much as an as a synapomorphy, so as a shared characteristic, they all did not have skulls. Yeah. So that's like <laughs> the main thing that's conserved even that, across even, snakes. Even that Cretaceous snake that got preserved in amber, the amber one is yeah. lacking a skull. So didn't have know, a skull. Yeah. So typical. It, typical. Uh, along with this, well, they there, didn't develop heads until fifty million years ago. So. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> along with this, there, there are other groups of snakish like reptiles that you know that are in the same near the branch that led to snake you know we have mosasaurs that are probably somewhere there we have other group of uh, reptiles like the one that uh, tetradoph tetrapodophis belongs to which was first described as a four limb snake and it ended up that most likely it wasn't but it was uh, dolichosaurid which is a group of also snakeish uh, like, you know, right. squamates, which, you know, if you look at squamates and today, that, it's not uncommon because there are a bunch of snakeish like squamates. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, right. that's, that's the thing. The, the, the snake body form is, is super, super, super common, common in squamates. among among squamates. They What's unusual about lips. snakes is actually their skull. And the fact that we don't have the skull in the fossil history, for the most part, is... A problem because it makes it extremely <laughs> difficult for us to reconstruct any of this of this history. Perhaps um, it was the most delicious part of the snake. <laughs> I, you know, it's well, uh, all kinds of reasons. Snake morphology in the head is very delicate. The bones are very exactly. delicate, so it's very yeah. easy for them not to preserve. If you're going to get anything, you're likely to just get one of the bones, and that bone yeah. is not likely to tell you very much because snake skulls, as Gabriel has said, disarticulate really easily. Yeah. Yeah. So well, as, this is as, the question. Yeah. So there was a there was a paper that came out um, actually just a, a few weeks ago that was by Matsabura et al. 2019. Um, I it was published in in Karyotype or something is a Carger journal. Um, Karyotype analysis of four blind snake species: Reptilia squamata scolicophidia and karyotypic changes in serpentes. So. Um, I'm, I'm going to be harsh about this paper. You guys can go ahead and drink if you'd like. Uh, but the, the opening sentence of the paper is this. The suborder Serpentes is divided into two infraorders, Scolicophidia and Alathinophidia, no. which diverge at an early stage of snake diversification. Yikes. That's wrong. Yeah. That I is incredibly like, incorrect. So this paper is apparently written by people who don't understand the difference between taxonomy and phylogeny. Yes. That's so, terrible. yes, we classified the things they maybe currently the, uh, into two different into two different groups. Yeah. But that is not reflecting reviewer. their evolution. Yeah, I mean, how did that go through? It's that problem. And this is published a... in Cytogenetic 
and genome oh, research. That explains it all. I'm sorry, but we've talked about this before also. The inability <laughs> of some geneticists to understand basic taxonomy. I'm sorry, but... I think these are even cytogeneticists, which... Oh, yeah. This is painful. Anyway, this is uh, this is bad. Okay, this is really bad. I'm, I'm sorry about that, but this is bad. They've done some interesting stuff, but they're they're comparing here um, Lethiobia, Zerotyphlops, Indotyphlops, and Myriopholis, which I believe are um, not all from the same clade. I don't actually know. Yeah, so Myriopholis is a leptotyphlopid. So you're trying to make inferences about the evolution of the of the clade somehow in their ancestral state from animals that are not reflective of the ancestral state. Well, so, and they they start by by accepting Escolicophidia as a as a natural group yeah. and everything is just a mess. Right. The the right. the premise is flawed from the outset. Is, yeah, from the outset. Yeah. From this the way, outset. reading the title, you shouldn't have read any longer. <laughs> exactly. So it's it's pretty clear. So I'm, I'm not going to dwell on this paper. I just wanted to give it as an example of why this is a problem and the fact that the problem is persisting. We, there are still people who don't understand that this is not a real group. So uh, last year, there was a paper published by Aurélien Mirales et al. In, um, in the journal Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution, I think. No, Journal of Evolutionary Biology, JEB. Um, and the paper is called... Molecular Evidence for the Paraphyly of Scolicophidia and its Evolutionary Implications. So in this paper, they took 14 nuclear genes, which is really not a lot, uh, but is some, <laughs> and they uh, sampled across the phylogeny of the um, of Scolicophidians. So they had leptotyphlopids, they had the um, animalepididids, and they showed that well, hey, what do you know? The scolicophidia are paraphyletic. This has been shown many so, times before. We must this say. has been shown many times before. This is, uh, in my opinion, not a huge step forward in uh, in terms of our knowledge of these animals, but it is the most recent. And also, they made some interesting um, arguments about what this means for the ancestry of the snakes. Because they found that the Alethinophidians, so the Alethinophidians is just a fancy word for non-blind snake. So all right? the other basically, all, all the, the other, other snakes, snakes that are, are Alethinophidians. Okay. Exactly. So you have the annelids, you have the... Uh, tropidophids, you have the Europeltids, the macrostomata is the main, main, main group there. Macrostomata meaning big mouth. Okay, so the they found the animal lepidids to be sister to the Alethinophidians. So that is to say, animal lepidids are closest, are, are much closer related to all of the um, non-blind snakes. snakes than they are to the Scolicophidia sensu stricto, okay. which is to say uh, the, the, the leptotyphlopids so, and typhlopoids. So we are saying that this is maybe due to convergence. Exactly. Got it. Now, what they... So, so that, would, that would be sort of the inference, but what you need to do then 
is try and do an ancestral state reconstruction. And they did an ancestral state reconstruction on their um, on on the 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 phylogeny of the snakes, and they found as their as their inferred thing that the snakes were ancestrally um, uh, um, scolicoid. So they they inferred that all snakes were ancestrally burrowing, essentially that they ancestrally probably lacked cones and that they were all ancestrally microstomatous, that is to say small mouths, non-hinging non mouths, which is um, an opinion. <laughs> well, we, I mean, well, there are some reasons to, the, to think about, yeah. about it, yeah. I mean, right. the, we do the, know uh, there are very few studies on snake vision, but we do know that a lot of snakes that are non Scolicophidians, I mean, non, non, non blind snakes, but all the other snakes that we're going to call them from now on, the, all the other snakes, all the other yeah. snakes, there are so many of them who lack uh, cones. Like they don't have, they don't have the ability to see colors, unlike most or all other squamates that we know about. So there's something to say about probably they losing their ability of 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 of, of you know having reduced eyes like, like right. having this bottleneck of yeah exactly uh, of where the eyes yeah, yeah kind right. of kind yeah. of like right. what happened to us mammals we lost that ability okay. at some point and that's why we don't that's why our vision sucks <laughs> exactly yeah so um so so there is that inference the, the question here is um. How much do we trust these results? So if we look at the scolicoidy thing in particular, and so the scolicoidy, so whether or not the the they looked as they were essentially burrowing snakes, um, and uh, well, burrowing snakes that looked a little bit like blind snakes, and especially this question of macrostomy, the, the how how um, wide they were able to open their jaws, uh, you you run into relatively major problems because if we look at the jaws of these small snakes and this is what our paper this Chrétien et al paper that we published in the journal of anatomy um, this is what we were arguing the jaws the jaw mechanism of the typhlopoids the leptotyphlopids and the scolic and the animal lepidids is extremely different they have adapted to the same function, but the actual bones that they use, the connections between the bones, the way that all those bones articulate with one another is completely different. And it is conserved in every case. So within each of these different major clades, it is identical across all of the clades. This, we for us argue well yeah of all of the extant ones that have been examined which i mean which is not that many it's it's still quite a lot it's dozens within each of the different radiations okay so there's been a lot of work done on this especially by um oliver Ripple and uh a number of other people in the states there was um especially in the carl gans books um i think there's this kundal and irish uh, chapter in book either 20 or 21 on, on skull morphology, where they detail really nicely the work that's been done until now on, uh, on skull morphology within the Scolocophidians. And they, they present these really nice figures comparing the um, leptotyphlopids, the animal lepidids, and 
the um, typhlopoids. And what you what you see there is that these these differences are fundamental. And what I argue from that is basically that what we're seeing is extreme convergence, perhaps very early on even in the in the evolution of these groups, or it must have been very early on in the evolution of these groups, but extreme convergence on a eusocial insect diet. And what that means is that we, we're looking at these animals that have converged because of, you know, some, some crazy adaptation to a very particular niche. So your inference about phylogeny, or, or about the, the, what the ancestor of these three different things looked like, is really biased. It happens that these groups survived until today, whereas possibly a lot of the stuff in between them was wiped out, especially because these are the most burrowing of snakes, making mm -hmm. them the most uh, resilient mm -hmm. to the vast majority of catastrophic events. Mm -hmm. So inferring things about what the ancestral snake looked like from your, uh, your blind snakes is actually not liable to give you any kind of reliable results, simply because convergence happened very early on and resulted in more or less the same sort of bow plan. Although, can, can we say that probably, um, even if it was not uh, a, a specialized ant or ter termite feeder, we, if we agree that the, the, the ancestor of all snakes was some sort of small fossorial-ish kind of thing. Because, right. you know, when you look at other snakes that tend to go fossorial, they tend to look also similar. Their eyes right. reduce. That's true. Their That's true. body becomes very even much... Not, even non-snake. I mean, right, any kind of squamate that, that exactly. does Exactly. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Right. Yeah. And they do tend to lose their eyelids. Happens. Right. Yep. And, and uh, you have a variety of, num of different adaptations. But the other thing to bear in mind here... Um, not just all of this crazy stuff with the jaw mechanism, but you also have these snakes completely repurposing their their jaw bones and losing some jaw bones some, or some bones of the skull, which is another reason to infer that these are, are derived body shapes, that they're nothing like the ancestral form because the, um, the, the, the body, it, because you could not get a snake like the, you know, the non-burrowing snakes, all of the other snakes, you couldn't get that from one of these tiny animals because they don't have all the bones anymore. Yeah, it's And getting those bones back would be extremely it's uh, usually, challenging. Yeah, in biology, it's usually to lose is easier than to gain. Like to, to yes. regrow or something. Or to gain back. Or to gain right. back, exactly, yeah. to gain back. So, yeah. No, yeah. I totally agree. What, what it, this brings us back to, what we discussed, as discussed many times, this crazy um, idea that is not like it's become less popular nowadays, but I think it's still prevalent among paleontologists of the marine um, ancestry of snakes, snake, yeah. which is always something that has perplexed me. Like, why? It's completely bizarre. Yeah, it's like yeah. That, that, that for us that work with the extant reptiles, it's like, I mean, it's so obvious. We've seen it many, many, many times in squamates. It seems much more plausible to have a fossorial origin. It just yeah right based on what we have now and what we can see now and so many uh, times like it's not something yeah. uncommon it's happened 
numerous times in in in, in uh, squamates evolution and many different branches right. that are not related and they come back to the same and, and morphology. The aquatic, not to mention the fact that most of the aquatic squamates that we do have do not have reduced limbs in any exactly. and, the, and, the in any ones way. That, and the ones that are extinct like mosasaurs yeah. they keep their limbs ichthyosaurs they keep their limbs uh, yeah. plesiosaurs yeah. they kept their the limbs in all of the history yeah it, i mean in all the history of any squamate that's ever lost its limbs and none of them have associated that limb loss with becoming aquatic any Zero. reptile any makes, reptile makes no sense yeah. Yeah. yeah any reptiles ichthyosaurs kept their limbs plesiosaurs kept their limbs <laughs> turtles kept their limbs like you name it can you I imagine don't, a, I, can you imagine a, a limbless turtle yeah that's crazy it's like i don't know where this theory is so prevalent it's yeah. so gross right? I don't know how yeah. you would even evolve a limbless turtle. I don't think that would work. It's <laughs> <laughs> essentially a hockey puck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and even, even it, groups, it can only go up or down. It really it, can't. Yeah. Like, even groups that we don't have anymore, like, like I said, they get you so talatosaurs, they kept their limbs. Uh, placodons, they kept their limbs. I can name you forever. Squamates went back to the. Basically. None of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 None of them have ever lost their limbs because they became aquatic. A lot of them have subsequently colonized the aquatic niche a lot. So many different snakes. Yeah. So yes. many different, uh, you know, skinks and things that have reduced limbs that have also become semi-aquatic. Um, I mean, none of the aquatic skinks are limbless. Right. Right. All of them still have. Right. In they fact, none of the produced... other aquatic lizards are limbless. Yeah. And, and, right. and let's say yeah. that uh, 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 Tuataras, Rhynchocephalians, uh, had some species during the Jurassic that went back to the sea, became very elongated and snake like, and they kept their limbs. So, I don't know. I think we can put that nail firmly <laughs> in the coffin. I, don't, right. I still, I really don't understand why this debate still exists because for me, it is really, really clear. And we have here, now Now, what we can infer is that the, the two most ancient living groups of snakes, so the most um, basically diverged groups of snakes that are alive today, which are still the Scolicophidia sensulato in the broad sense, right? They're burrowing. Right. So it makes sense that that the the species that were around early on would also perhaps have been burrowing. They didn't necessarily look anything like a blind snake because the right. blind snakes probably survived as a result of the fact that their that their morphology was so derived. Right. But um, you know the the thing here is that the Scolicophidians are, as we've been saying, not a natural group, and they are. Essentially, I mean, I'm I'm completely convinced that this is an entirely uh, convergent convergent radiation. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you just have to look at the jaw so, morphology to make that completely so clear. So, fossorial, yes, blind snake, not so much. No, probably something with reduced eyes, right? Like something with small eyes. Yeah, but not, yeah, but, not small, but not but not, not the, completely under scales. Not no. to the level of a blind snake, right? No. Like there snakes have gone back to being fossorial in almost every radiation. I would think that almost every radiation, boids have it, colubroids have it. Like, you know, they, they even coral snakes. Coral snakes are a great example of that. They are fossorial, so their eyes turn very small. Coral snakes have small eyes. So lapids yeah. have it. Uh, I don't know if vipers have it. I don't think they're 
I don't think they're vipers. Well, they're semi-fossorial vipers. But they still like, have yeah, kind of largest they, eyes. They do the bury in the sand yeah. thing, right? Where their eyes... Yeah, are, yeah but their yeah. eyes they are still They shift their big. eyes to the top of the head, but they haven't reduced them. Yeah, they haven't they, reduced them. There are no vipers that I'm aware of that really hunt underground. Yeah, no. But but all the groups have it. Like, Coldubroids have a ton. I mean, I could yeah. S- yeah. spend hours naming names <laughs> that, that have this, <laughs> naming yeah. that genera that have that. So I don't see why, I mean, I imagine that that's how it happened. In fact, I am reconstructing uh, an old snake from the Jurassic, from the Morrison formation for my book. And that's pretty much the color pattern and everything that I'm giving it because, you know, it's you're obviously... Going, you're, going, you're going wormy with it. I'm going wormy, yeah. Probably yeah. with some sort of stripes because some, they tend to, many of them tend to have like... A little bit of striping, but you know that they basically barely brownish, purplish snakes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's I, I think that's pretty clear. They they did not have uh, uh, already defined ventral scales. That's another thing that unites these all of these groups. But actually, very early, like the even the early um, branches of the all of the other snakes. Um, Include things like the acrocordids, which also don't have um, clearly defined ventral scales. Anilids, and, um, uh, anilids, anilids too, also yeah. do not have uh, these these um, these scales. So there's there is a lot that we can say about what the ancestral snake snake may have looked like, uh, but I think we can say relatively clearly that it was not uh, scolicophidian. In, in the sense that it, it was not like the vast majority of what the Scolicophidians look like today. Probably something in that area, and then these things sort of branched <coughs> off and became yeah. really specialized, yeah. specialized burrowers. Just not as specialized as these guys, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So the, what is interesting okay. now is to, is to study what are the advantages of having this mechanism of feeding uh, for, you know, ant or termite specialist burrowers. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, and 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 the you know if there are if there are benefits to any one of the different <coughs> groups, like why is it that typhlopoids are so much more diverse than all of the other um, all of the other uh, blind uh, snakes? I think it's I think it's interesting that the snake answer to evolving into an anteater is to just become the tongue. <laughs> That's essentially it's basically what true. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, this is one of the things that we tried to figure out in the in the Xenotyphlops paper, because Xenotyphlops uh, looks essentially like a normal blind snake. It's got this very um, so all of these these blind snakes have sort of tubular skulls that don't have a lot of up and down, and it's just sort of a long thin thing that then opens at the front and um num num. Now. What Xenotyphlops has done is it's gotten halfway through there, and then the front of its jaw, jaw has just gone straight down. So now the jaw doesn't open forwards, but opens downwards onto the thing. And so we were trying to figure out what is happening. Like, wh- why? Why would you? Why would you do this? So in our paper, there's a list. I think of six different, uh, four, four, four to six different hypotheses that we put forward on. Why does the skull of Xenotyphlops look so weird? I mean, Xeno, meaning foreign, weird. Alien. Um, alien. alien, yeah. Um, <laughs> like Xenomorph. The, they, they were recognized from the very beginning as being extremely unusual, uh, weird-looking animals. And you had to put a picture and of the skull because the skull, Mark 
You know, oh, yeah. just insanely sure. looking. It's completely, it's completely crazy. It's now, sort of a bullet shape too, right? It's almost. It looks like... a lot like the beak of a flamingo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. really does. So if you imagine a flamingo goes straight out and then straight down, it looks much like that. So why, why does it have that inflection? Well, we put forward a few different hypotheses. One of them is that uh, you can essentially, if you're being attacked by ants, you can defend yourself with this really reinforced front faceplate of your, of your thing, and you can eat them from above. They can get to them. Oh, there's uh, there's a really cool paper. I'll try I'll try and put it in the show notes. Uh, uh, I think it's by Thomas Clay. I can't remember. Um, where they basically showed that these are also the uh, some 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 scolicovidian. I'm not sure which one is the only snake that um, breaks up its prey. So they behead the termites that they're eating um, <laughs> because I don't know they don't want to eat the heads or whatever. Um, and yeah, so they, they separate the, the head and the thorax and eat them separately, huh. which is pretty cool. Um, anyway, so maybe they're eating from above. Then uh, I had a really funny conversation with a colleague of mine recently where he proposed that they are sticking their head out of the sand upward and waiting essentially for something to come along and bump into their jaw <laughs> yeah, and gobbling it that way, which is like hilarious because they're eating at a right angle to the ground. Periscoping. Like periscope yeah. eating. Yeah. Which is which is very they, funny. They tend to um, form. I mean, ants and termites tend to that'll, form. That'll turn tend out, to form lines. Yeah. So it makes sense. <laughs> Can you imagine? He just sits there with his mouth open. Ah, that's how I imagine the ants go marching two by two. Uh, yeah. So um, also, um, I would like to know what because it's, um, it could it be a digging apparatus? Like, is it using that to? No, because the 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 body of the snake actually goes around it and makes it still into a tube. Yeah. Like you would but never get that shape it, from seeing the snake outside. That's from like. No, no, never. Yeah. Typical. Um, yeah. But, but what we think is probably the most likely thing is that these snakes live in really loose sand, and there are two. Basically, two different ways to go about burrowing best in loose sand. You can do the skinkus skinkus uh, body morphology, where you look like a fish. You become very narrow at the front, or you can essentially become a battering ram. Yeah, like and your battering ram, if it's angled slightly upward, will do a really good job of shifting that sand off of you. So that is that's probably the most likely. Whether that like was a, sufficiently like adaptive to drive like this a, is unlikely. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. But yeah. I, yeah. I would like to know because I know at least Leptotiflopids also eat a lot of um, ant larvae, which obviously you know entails a whole different way of eating because it's a completely different type of prey than adult ants or termites. So uh, there's probably a lot to do with that also. Let's see how what the percentage of Larvae is on the diet, and what the percentage of adult animals is. There have to be yeah, a niche, niche partitioning yeah, like there said, too. It's just, if it's just dropping down on some larvae, there very like, very possible. Yeah, and yeah. in some, I know in some communities we have several different species that can occur. We we discovered last yes. year uh, a species of matatiflops that could very well be new, and it's huge. It's about as long as my forearm. And about as thick as your average uh, hot dog. Yeah. So let, let's say also that wow. typhlopoids are the largest of this group of blind snakes. They, they can be yeah. the largest. Some yeah. of them, there yeah. are still tiny ones as well. Yeah. Yeah. But like, but. like yeah, because at some, like in the neotropics, amerotyphlops, sometimes they look like cigars, like large cigars, because they're they're they are <laughs> thick and 
you know, they look yeah. like cigars. So it's very different yeah. from... And there are some that get really large. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Leptotiflop pits tend to be smaller and much thin. So much so that their common name is usually thread snakes because they look like... Thread uh, snakes, yeah. Like they're usually yeah. thinner. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. And there are some tiny, tiny species that allegedly can, um, can like fit down the lead of a pencil if you were to take the lead out of your pencil that can yeah. fit down there. I'm not sure that I entirely believe that, but they are, there are some very, very small species. <laughs> Who's doing that to these snakes anyway? Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, it's like a normal snake tube. It will not happily go in or out. <laughs> um, okay, we, we have a few questions from Lizardners that are all related to the, to the Typhlopoids and well, to the Scotocophidians. So let's just go through some of them quickly. Um, at omarginal3 on Twitter asked, if Scotocophidia in its current sense is paraphyletic, why isn't the sister clade of Alethinophidia, the animal lepidids, different from other species in its skull morphology? And the answer is, it is <laughs> we just talked about very it. <laughs> different. <laughs> we just yeah. talked about it. Uh, so we've, we've basically answered that question. We have some questions from Instagram people. Um, which blind snake is objectively the best one? They all look the same. <laughs> I, I am quite partial to Xenotyflops. It's quite weird. But uh, there is a really, really cute picture of a blind snake yawning that has made the rounds that I one oh, time, yeah. I, I figured out yeah. what it is. I think it's Rena Dulcis, but I'm not sure. Um, it's it's a, very cute. Yeah, that's the viral, uh, yeah. That's the it's one yawning, that is the yeah. North American one, right? That's the one that we have here in the Mirama. I can't remember. Yeah, because they're, they're for uh, um, listeners in North America, in Europe, I don't think you have any, it's called like Ophidians in Europe, right? But uh, yeah, we do. We, which, there, there are some typhlopids that are down in uh, in the southeast. Oh, like in Greece. But uh, yeah, in Greece, certainly also down into Turkey and stuff. Uh -huh. I mean, as, as you start cool to leave Europe, to, to things get herpes. better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, there are some. So, there are um, a couple of species here in the United States, also. Yeah, I the only one I really knew anything about at all was the the Brahmini. Blind snake. Oh, well, that so, one is introduced. One. That one is introduced. It's not native. Right, right. No, but I mean that's the only one I've like actually seen. You know, so it, yeah, yeah. It, it's not. So it, it is. It is in fact the the Brahmini blind snake that decapitates its uh, its termites. Oh yeah. Well, I, I just the found that The reason paper. why why we know that is because that's the probably the most common, best studied. I mean, I, I wonder how many things we don't know about about these snakes because yeah, because yeah. they are not and and, and especially um, anomalepidids in this neotropics in South America. They are exceedingly rare. I mean, it's always something that you oh, I well, found I found a liotyphlops, yeah. and everybody's freaking out because it's not they are not common. Is they're this like the Sicilian situation where they may be common? We just have no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 They're, they're very hard to find. Yeah. You you can have some luck with uh, with pitfall traps if you put them in right, but in general, it takes really heavy rain to get them out of the yeah, out but, of the ground. But just have, like Sicilians. But, but like for example, leptotifloppids are common. You find them all the time. Like uh, in South America, they're common. They appear in your house all the time. You find them in the back air all the time. Like Letotiflopis macrolepis, super common in, in some parts. Uh, yeah. Gudotai, super common. But um, Anomalepidids, for 
you know, they're probably more common than, than they appear to be, but they are exceedingly rare. It's not, um, and so that that's another reason why their taxonomy is complicated because um, there might be uh, difficulty comparing because there are not many specimens around to compare. So we don't know what the variation of these animals really is. It's, it happens with many other fossorias. Next, it happened with Attractus, for example, which is a neotropical culubroid uh, uh fossorial genus, that tend to happen. And you know, when you have, uh, it's the same reason why the taxonomy on uh, Sicilians is complicated because we have few specimens. We don't know what the entire variation on the species is. And if we yeah. don't have genetic studies yeah. and we only go for mor by morphology, yeah. sometimes it's difficult to, you know, to tell species apart. Right. Yeah, and if you go if you go really early into the uh, osteological literature, you also come across these beautiful papers where they, because the skulls of these things are less than a centimeter long, um, they prepare them in slices. And some of the people who were doing the, the sliced studies did not even try to, um, to correct when the lines became wiggly. <laughs> and, and the result is that you get these things that look like their, their bones have been accordioned somehow, like completely compressed and distorted. Um, and so uh, MicroCT has completely revolutionized this because now we can look at the detail of these skulls in, I mean, no one has ever managed to do this by hand. And it's really completely changed the way that we we look at these animals. Um, I'm going to put in the, cool. in the in the Instagram and in Twitter. I'm going to put a drawing that I did with the scale nomenclature on the tiflopids, and I think I have one for tiflopids too. So that that would be something that would be good for listeners yeah. to see. And another thing that I want to say: a lot of these snakes. I don't know if tiflopid. Mark would correct me on this, but I know leptotiflopids. Have a, they tend to have a, a like a spiny scale at the end of the tail, and a lot of these snakes tend to do that. They tend to have a spiny scale at the end of the tail that when you handle them, they dig you. They will dig it they into will dig you. It into yeah. you. Like, yeah, yeah. A, a lot of a lot of the typhlopids have that, and the typhlopoids as well. So another yeah. convergence because um, we don't know. I, I, yeah, yeah. It's interesting to know why these burrowing <laughs> animals have that. Why they have a pokey yeah. tail? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a it's a good defense thing, you know. It's 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 the one defense thing that they essentially have. Well, they it's also really, produce um, that musk. They, a lot of them tend to produce like a very ah, uh, they stink. Yeah, they absolutely stink. Yeah, yeah. Um, so actually, sort of sort of semi related to this, uh, I, I wanted to say two things. First of all, you said about the scale patterns. Um, I, it's a lot of people use scale counting on uh, on typhlopids to try and do taxonomic things to identify them. Um, but part of the problem with doing that is that most, uh, at least most of the typhlopoid scales are transparent. And that means that you can actually see both the edge of the scale, which is very indistinct, you have to get the light catching it correctly, and the anchor point of the scale, which is quite distinct because it's sort of a darker red color than the rest of the skin. And the, the hilarious result is you get completely unreliable count, uh, scale counts done because they're done based on the anchor points of the scales and not the, um, and not the edges of the, so not the actual number of scales itself, which is really funny. And you get that problem, especially on the uh, upper, uh, upper lip scales, the labial scales. Because in those scales, you tend to count something called imbrication, the 
which scales are under underneath or overlap which other scales. Mm -hmm. That's really important for the taxonomy of the animals, but it's super hard to tell. And, and when I was doing the drawings for the heads of Letotiflops and, and, and Tiflopids, it was a nightmare because it's difficult to see where the scales start and end. And, and these things are so small. I was I was looking at some of them in microscope and I was like, I don't see where this, where are these scales? <laughs> were you, you were, working, you were yeah. working from an actual specimen or yeah. were you, yeah. Uh, yeah. I was going to say that would be almost impossible from a photo. No, well, actually, it's, it's really not possible to count their scales from photos. No, it's yeah. it's, it's very hard. It's very hard. And like Mark yeah. says, you have to rotate them and put them in the right light to see where, where <laughs> you actually the, 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 the thing yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we have a related question from our, our good friend, Darren, who we've already mentioned uh, earlier, Darren Nash of the uh, Tetrapod Zoology blog and podcasts. Um, and Darren asks, uh, blind snake scales have anti-fouling properties, right? Is this just to do with scale microtexture or are, ma or are magic force fields involved? <laughs> Thanks, Darren. Um, <laughs> uh, the answer is, I presume, microtexture. So uh, by anti-fouling properties, I guess he means you can't, um, like you cannot make them dirty. So you, you you can't like uh being scrape snakes, anything on them or they sting do them shed, or whatever. correct? Oh yeah, they, they do shed, but in fact it's it's true that it's really hard to for example, if you take a permanent marker, which we do a lot when we're trying to count these scales, and you, you dab permanent marker on the scale, it doesn't stick at all. It just comes right off. I wonder, it, like, it slides I wonder off. how much of that is also protect some sort of the way the scales protect against ants. Uh, attacks yeah. because I know a lot of these things. Well, their scales maybe, are also yeah. very, the scales are also very yeah. tightly. I mean, they don't. They're super imbricated. Super imbricated, yeah. yeah, like super super tight. So a lot of that is probably protection against um, yeah. termites and ants. And you can imagine also these animals that are using uh, formic acid as a as a means of defense. You yeah. want to do your best to not make that stick to you. Plus, you are constantly surrounded by dirt. And dirt is going to get everywhere in your scales and on your scales. So it's really easy to imagine that they would be evolving um, some, some microtexture that will be uh, making the dust essentially fall off of them, which keeps them shiny despite the fact that they're um, living in, in dirt and yeah. mud. That's the it's, other like thing the opposite, it's like the opposite of a gecko foot. Exactly. <laughs> Well, I mean, gecko feet are also remarkably um, uh, uh, resilient to getting dirty. So both, uh, yeah, they, they stick, yeah. of yeah. course, to very to things very well. But they are also um, essentially they they can't really get soiled unless they get super super wet. Yeah, and that's another thing about yeah. about about these snakes because of what we were saying about the way the scale morphology is. They tend to be super super shiny. They look um, metallic almost. So yeah. That's, one of the ways you can tell them apart immediately from for um, a small worm is that they are like super shiny. They have like yeah, they look like metallic little worms. Although I have seen some worms that have like rainbow sheen shine to them, especially giant worms, and it's completely insane. <laughs> yeah. So I think that actually brings us to the end of the discussion, unless there's something else that you guys want to know or talk about about uh, about blind snakes. Yeah, let's uh, no, let's kill another hour. Bravo Why, to know, us. Like, Pat on the back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
we hope that you agree, dear listeners, that we have done an excellent job. And as a result, if you if you think we've done well enough, it would be great if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review on uh, on on iTunes and Apple Podcasts and stuff. And actually, anywhere that you can leave a review would be great. Facebook, you can also leave us a review. Also very welcome. We don't have a lot of, uh, of reviews on Facebook. Thank you to everyone who has reviewed the show or even has just gone to rate it. It's really appreciated. It really helps us get listened to and seen by other people. I've seen in, a, in the States in particularly, uh, in particular, we've had quite a number of ratings and uh, I, I do believe all of them have been five stars, which is just so nice. Thank you very much for for liking our our inane chat. We appreciate it very um, much. <laughs> yes, thank we, you. We really do. Um, as always, there will be extensive show notes on our website, squamatespod.com, where you can also, um, of course, subscribe to the show. You can also subscribe to it pretty much everywhere all over the interwebs. Um, basically, anytime, anywhere that you want to subscribe, you will be able to subscribe unless you like Spotify podcasts, in which case, sorry, <laughs> our episodes are too long and too big uh, because I refuse to compress them to, degree, to the degree that Spotify wants them at. Um, so yeah, th- there's none of that. Okay, uh, Ethan, where can one find you on the interwebs? Uh, I'm uh, at Black Mud Puppy on Twitter and uh, on Instagram, and I am uh, also proprietor of the website nudist.com. N-E-W-T-ist, not <laughs> nudist.com. Very different yes. website. <laughs> yes. <sighs> but it is the, I do have the nudist colony of, you know, so... <laughs> so good. <laughs> uh, okay, Gabriel, where can one find you on the internet? And I'm at, at Serpent Illus, and that's with a double L, at uh, Instagram and Twitter. And I'm also on Facebook. And my website is GabrielUgeto.com. Excellent. You can find me at Mark Schertz, S C H E R Z on facebook and internet uh <laughs> facebook <and> instagram <laughs> and twitter in particular in fact pretty much i'm i'm mostly only on twitter uh and yeah you can you can find me across all those things you can also find me on my website markshirts.com where i have currently well recently not posted anything but i i will soon be posting a number of different things about wrapping up my thesis and such uh, if you if that strikes your fancy, um, my website should hopefully no longer be infected with the uh, spammy hack thing that it had been infected with until now. So I apologize to all of those people who were somehow brought to a Canadian website selling um, uh, drugs of some kind when they tried to <laughs> click on my website. Uh, <laughs> it should be fixed now. I've known about that problem for some time, but I've not been able to fix it until uh, recently when I decided that I needed to work on that instead of finishing my thesis. Um, (laughs) Anyway, you can follow the podcast, obviously, squamatespod.com, as I've already said, on Twitter, at squamatespod, on Facebook, at squamatespod, Instagram, squamatespod. You can send us an email if you don't want your questions to be all public and like. uh, Squamatespod at gmail.com. And... As we say on the show, Hakuna Squad!